0: Hey everybody, it's Britt, Lead Pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are in a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We want you to know that during COVID, we're holding one big service outdoors. And we'd love for you to join us whenever you can. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, I just want to start off by saying a big shout out to all of our Sunridge folks who, for whatever reason, you still feel like you cannot join us for our one big service on Sunday mornings. We miss you guys, and we're really looking forward to a time when we can be together and a lot of this has passed by us. If you're a guest with us, if you're just watching this online po- online uh, service or you're listening uh, to our podcast, we want to welcome you as well. My name's Brit. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're in a series uh, taken from the Sermon on the Mount. We've just been going through Jesus's teaching in Matthew 5 through 7. And uh, we're in a mini section of that series that that uh, is, we've just titled To Be Seen. These are Good things that uh, people who follow Jesus do, but uh, somehow our motive gets off. So let's just jump right in to uh, our study today. We're in Matthew chapter six, verse 16. Jesus says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Uh, There in wildland firefighting, there are some situations that we call the watch out situations. There are 18 18 of them. And one of them is when you're in country, you haven't seen in the daylight. And in other words, you show up to a large wildland fire and you're not familiar with the the territory that you're in. And it just means that you're vulnerable because of that lack of familiarity. And I kind of feel like that when we talk about fasting. So I just want to start off by saying that, you know, I admit personally that I don't have a ton of experience with this. And maybe you can relate to that as someone who is not a, Uh, continual faster, which kind of leads to some concerns of mine when I think about being the teacher or talking to you guys about this. My first concern is, I've asked myself honestly, you know, is this just going to be a throwaway message? In other words, one that may not feel immediately relatable to a lot of people. So can we just admit that uh, for some of us, perhaps many of us, fasting is something that's foreign. We don't really understand it most most christians don't do it statistically and most probably won't do it and so this is one of those things that the bible seems to talk about but uh and it seems like we should be following but it just doesn't really connect to our lives in 2021 i just want to admit that I'm feeling that as I drop into this teaching. And then my second concern is with all the misconceptions that are associated with this practice, is it even something that we're supposed to do today? And I hope today to not uh, contribute to those misconceptions. I hope that you will learn with me as we go through the scriptures, a few things about fasting and then about what Jesus is bringing forward in each of these teachings that we've called the to be seen section. Historically, we need to kind of figure out what was fasting about and how was it being practiced in the first century? So this is the first part of our notes as we've been doing kind of a historical and uh, biblical perspective of fasting. Number one, fasting was a spiritual discipline of that day. Now, I know that spiritual discipline definitely was not a phrase that they used in the first century, and for some of you, that might be a new uh, phrase to you, but simply, it's just a handle. It's a handle that describes a practice that enhances our spiritual growth and is a part of the religious experience or our worship. And you can think about all the things that we do today that are part of that, whether it's reading our Bible or being in a small group or doing Bible study or coming to church and worshiping and singing and praying. These are all spiritual disciplines. And this is one of three that Jesus mentions. If you've been tracking with us, we've talked about giving and prayer and now fasting, which are all kind of staples of the first century Judaism. And then the church, as we will see. And so Jesus here is not, abolishing these practices and he here he's not commanding that we be generous or pray or fast but he's assuming them and you can see that in the way that he phrases this when he says when you he's just assuming that this is part of their normal practice second thing about fasting is it was a choice not to eat for a specific period of time in response to something sometimes it even means not to drink at all and um, that's that's distinct from many of the things that we do today that we might call fasting that are really abstinence. We might, um, in in our spiritual worship, we might abstain from movies or eating out or social media and all those things can be helpful, but they're not specifically or technically um, in the category of fasting. Another thing is fasting was commonly from evening meal to evening meal So a typical fasting period in the first century was 24 hours. So if you run that through your mind, you know, for half the time, uh, they're typically at home and even asleep. And so uh, when Jesus is talking about those who fast, they're not, he's not talking about something that's horribly uncomfortable. But what he is pointing out is the next morning when they go to work or they're out in their community, some are wearing that discomfort like a badge, and we're going to be talking about that. This next uh, point about fasting, we're going to go a little more in depth in. You know, fasting could be both voluntary and involuntary. In other words, it could be something that was on your calendar. Uh, It was something that you specifically chose to do as part of a practice, or it could just be something that came up in your life and you're simply responding to something that happened. An example of involuntary fasting that would be on the calendar is Yom Kippur, which is, uh, if you just literally translate that, it means Day of Atonement, and you, you might have heard that. Uh, phrase before, but that dates back all the way to Leviticus in chapter 16 and uh, chapter 23 talks about it. It's in reference to when Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the 10 commandments and he finds the people worshiping a golden calf. And so this practice dates back to uh, that day of atonement. In other words, memorializing or, or, or uh, you know, remembering how we can walk away from God in the midst of something that that God is doing that is really great. And fasting is part of that practice for the first century uh, people who are following God. It was part of their, as they prepared for confession and atonement and forgiveness, they would spend all day in prayer and fasting. Now in the time of Jesus, involuntary fasting had become a bi-weekly institution. It's not that the Old Testament said that it was supposed to be, but uh, they just thought it was a good idea. And so devout Pharisees at the time of Jesus typically would fast on Monday and Thursday. And what's interesting is one of the things that I learned as I uh, prepared this teaching is that... um, Christians fasted, but they wanted to be different, especially those who came from a Jewish background. So they fasted on Wednesday and Friday, and uh, I just personally I kind of find a little humor in that—that that we want to do the same practice, but we want to make sure that we do it differently, um, you know, just so that we can distinguish ourselves from them. And. Uh, I'm pretty confident that there were churches that uh, designated, well, we're Wednesday, Friday fasters. And then there were probably others who said, oh no, we stick with the original Monday and Thursday. Um, then there's voluntary fasting in the first century. And that, that kind of fasting was a spontaneous response to, to an event, something that maybe was grievous, like uh, a sickness or a tragedy, uh, a death. In the family, or lament, or in longing for justice, uh, in uh, uh, solidarity with the poor and the hungry. And that gets it like the things that we just know are in our gut. And when these things happen, you know, often we're not hungry anyway. Maybe you can relate to that. And fasting is a natural response to those things that we feel deeply about. A few examples of voluntary fasting. Um, would be number one as an act of repentance. We see this in the Old Testament. Some, some people refer to fasting as the body turning. And as um, some of our heroes in the Old Testament that were, um, you know, like they recognized or acknowledged uh, the destructiveness of sin in their lives, they would fast in response to that. David did this in Psalm 35, verse 13. He says, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. And so that bondage that we recognize that is part of our lives and destroying us sometimes churns in our stomach. And the physical response to repentance is to not eat for a period of time. Another uh, example of voluntary fasting is in those periods when God might feel distant to us. And it's not that, um, that fasting will make him any closer to us, but sometimes our body reflects what our spirit feels. Uh, there's also like, if we're just entering into the grief of God, you see this often in the old Testament practices. Uh, but in a modern day, you know, um, You feel it in your gut when when you learn that a friend or a family member has terminal cancer or you lose a parent. It's empathy that compels you. So voluntary fasting was then and is still an expression that comes from our humanity and how we take up the posture of God in these events that we experience in our lives. Scott McKnight in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount puts it this way. Fasting enters into how God interprets, experiences, understands, and explains significant events. Fasting, in fact, enters into God's pathos or into what God thinks and feels about death, sin, war, violence, and injustice. You've heard the phrase before, mission creep uh it's when you know the the main thing is no longer the main thing and other things creep in and we move out of the lane that is important either in our organization or in our worship of god and fasting here had drifted in mission mission creep had occurred and so once again like in uh giving and prayer Jesus is pointing out how a good practice, a spiritual practice, something that's part of our worship of God, can be corrupted if it has the wrong motive. So here's Jesus' teaching on fasting. And as with the others, he first talks about what not to do, and then he talks about what to do. Number one, what not to do in verse 16. When you fast, and again, there is an affirmation here of both voluntary and involuntary fasting, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. So simply put, Jesus here again, as he has with these other practices, he's saying, don't be a religious performer. As the hypocrites do or the actors do, as we've talked about that practice of that day in theater to wear a mask, not so much a costume, but a mask only to designate your role, who you were. In verse 16, he says, when uh, uh, I love how the message puts this, when you practice some appetite denying discipline to better concentrate on God, don't make a production out of it. See, their role as the actor or the part is this. Here's your part look somber, disfigure your face. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I can picture a little nonverbal uh, communication going on here in Jesus' part, maybe a little sarcasm, even, you know. I picture him making those faces uh, as he says this. Now, if this is literally what people were doing, they may have been placing dust or ashes on the top of their heads as a sign of grief, which would happen twice a week, uh, or it could just be um, Jesus using a metaphor of how they make their faces. Think about our kids. you know you know how when your kids like will kind of feign how sad they are because you didn't do something for them. You wouldn't buy them the toy when you were in the store. Or you didn't uh, do exactly what they would do. And you know, like, you know, that's like, it's not genuine. And so you just look at them and it's like, stop faking. You know, you're faking that. And they try to keep the sad face, but eventually they start to giggle. I think that that's kind of the picture here. There's like a making of a face that is not genuine. And evidently, um, they would really emphasize this drain that fasting had on their looks. And I can just picture common conversations in the first church or even among uh, those that were following Jesus at that time. Oh, you must be fasting. I can tell by your face. And then that would give you an opportunity to say something really spiritual like, yeah, but Jesus is all I need. You know, he's the bread of life. See, being somber... Or grieving here, uh, which is kind of a catalyst often to fasting, is not what Jesus is critical of. Those are real emotions and they're genuine in us. It's why we do it. And again, he points it out, to show others. That's what not to do. Now, secondly, he talks about what we should do or what to do in verse 17. He says, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. So that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words here, again, this is in your notes. Jesus is saying, be genuine. He says, put oil on your head. I mean, this possibly is the first century brill cream. I know I'm dating myself by that, but. If you're watching online on the podcast and you know what um, real cream is, give me a shout out. Give me a thumbs up on that. If you don't know, don't even worry about it. You could Google it though. And then he says, wash your face as well. See, Jesus is just simply saying, when you fast, follow your typical personal hygiene practices. Now, uh, thankfully, um, Cindy keeps after me about my personal hygiene. I wash, I want to assure you that, but like there are certain things that I'm still like a little kid about, and it's hard for me to sit still, whether it's like to get the hair off my neck or uh, to get it out of my ears or my eyebrows. I still have a little bit of uh, little boy in me, and yet I have to sit still for a while so that I look presentable. And as I studied for this, I thought, you know, if, if I would just stop doing these things, people would think I'm really spiritual. Like, I'm just so busy that I, can't, I cannot uh, get after the hair bursting out of my ears. I know that that's too much information for many of you, but I'm hoping that if I, if I can relinquish these things, I will look really spiritual. No, they'll actually probably just make me look like the Neanderthal that I am, so... So why follow normal hygiene? Is Jesus saying just be fake in another way? In other words, mask what I am doing in your life or hide your problems? No, that would be hypocritical as well, right? We know that Jesus said that we're to be the light and to let our good works shine and that people learn from us. They are inspired by what we do and it's good for us to be vulnerable, to simply be genuine but we can be so weird about that at times. And I don't know about you, but I just find it comforting to know that, it, that my generation and your generation isn't the first to make the most of our spirituality uh, when it comes to others, whether it's giving noisily or praying loudly or fasting with a sad face. See, Jesus is not confronting fasting or other spiritual disciplines and trying to abolish them for that matter. He's not even saying don't ever talk about it. He's simply saying that we're at our best when we're genuine about it. So how do we respond to this teaching of Jesus and kind of like this grouping of teachings to Jesus? Specifically on this one, I wanna just start off by saying, I wanna give a caution about eating disorders because it's a very real danger, uh, particularly for young adolescent girls. According to ANAD, the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associative Disorders, 9% of the U.S. population, that is almost 29 million Americans, suffer from an eating disorder in their lifetime. Eating disorders are among the deadliest mental illnesses, second only to opioid overdose. And so what that means in America is that there are over 10,000 deaths each year that are directly related to an eating disorder. If you're doing the math, that's one death every 52 minutes. And about 26% of people with eating disorders will attempt suicide. And the economic cost of eating disorders is over $64 billion a year. So the reason why I bring that up is I think that that's particularly risky for some people, uh, this practice. Starving ourselves for the sake of body image is not what Jesus is talking about. And I don't think that uh, Jesus is in any way representing fasting as a dietary benefit to us. It may or may not be beneficial. I'm not a doctor and I'm not a dietitian, but nowhere in the Bible is fasting something that is done for dietary reasons. And eating is not a way to punish ourselves for whatever it is we feel that we should be punishing ourselves for. So I want to say to you, eyeball to eyeball, that if you struggle with body image in this way, I think that you should avoid this practice. Now, the second uh, way that we can respond to this, and I think that this applies to all of us, um, we have to constantly examine our motives. I think that this is what Jesus is getting at. This is the biggie. It's on the test, this idea to be seen. What is it that we're trying to call attention to? Why are we calling attention to it and how are we doing it? Why are we taking these things, these practices that are so helpful to us in our spiritual walk and in following Jesus and making them into something that we do in order to show others or as Jesus says here, to make it obvious that we're practicing them. I mean, why are we fasting in the first place or any other spiritual discipline? I love what Zechariah, the prophet says in Zechariah 7, 4, he says, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? Good question, Zechariah. You see, there are a number of wrong motives that we can have in fasting or any other spiritual discipline. Number one, to elevate ourselves. Are you hungry? You look, you look so hungry. No, I'm not hungry. I'm fasting, uh, uh, but I'm satisfied by the spirit of God. And it's not just fasting. Let's be honest that sometimes we take these spiritual practices, whether it's Bible study or a name that we drop or a book that we've been reading or a doctrine that we hold or how we've been serving, and we we use them to elevate ourselves. A couple of weeks ago, I said that to be self-righteous is to be cognizant of our own self-righteousness. And sometimes we can just pat ourselves on the back so much to make ourselves appear good to ourselves. You know, there's kind of a good pride and then there's like a pride that isn't so good. And I found that it's it's easy to spot the bad pride in others but difficult to spot it in myself. But often the way that we talk about our practices, whether it's our Bible reading or prayer or doctrines that we believe or a debated position on this matter or that or our giving or our fasting, become something that we turn them into a way to elevate ourselves. Uh, I ha- I'm i an avid mountain biker, um, and I have a bike that I can often find myself elevating myself with the bike that I ride. Let me explain. It's like, you know, there's a wide range of mountain bikes, and I have one that is like top of the line. I've I've been fortunate to get some hookups and, you know, like I've never paid for that level of bike. I happen to ride an Intense Carbine Pro Build, so I know that I've probably elevated myself in telling you that. And if you see me on the trail, maybe not on the trail, in the parking lot of the trailhead where I'm getting that bike out, there's going to be awe of me in the bike that I have but what's going to be true is you're going to, you're going to make a bunch of assumptions about my capability based on the bike that I ride, which will not be true. The truth is that that bike is far above me. And I just happen to be fortunate to have that level of bike. I hope that that's making the connection for you. You know, uh, because we, we take things from our regular life and our spiritual life, and we turn them into something that like lifts us up. I mean, can we not ask ourselves you know why, why am I talking about this or talking about it in that way? Why am I posting this? Why am I letting everybody know what I think about this or that or what i 've done it 's so easy to take these things about what we're doing and turn them, turn them into a statement about how incredible we are. So we can take something good and we can use it to elevate ourselves. But there's another side to that that goes with it. We can A wrong motive is to lower others. See, making myself good, look good always includes making others look bad. They are brothers from another mother. You know, they go together. Jesus is questioned in Mark 2, why his followers didn't fast like the Pharisees did. In other words, why don't you do it like we do? So not only are they elevating themselves in the way that they fast, but they're also lowering Jesus' disciples and Jesus as well to say like, and what's wrong with you in comparison to me? Do you get it? I mean, how many times ha- do, do we think of ourselves uh, in what we've done, or we've listened to a message and we're thinking, I do that. That's perfect for me. They don't. I have to give this message to them. I mean, that's such a simple and basic way that we do it. I remember, um, Uh, in children's church I used to work in children's church early on when Cindy and I were first married and there was a song that we would sing and you would divide the room of kids into two sides and this side would sing and you would lead them we love Jesus yes we do we love Jesus how about you and they would all point across the room at the other group and then they would sing back The point being louder, we love Jesus, yes we do. We love Jesus, how about you? And it would go back and forth and the competition was was of course to see who could sing it the loudest. Sometimes I think that we're doing that in the things that we do that would be falling in the spiritual category, right? What are we doing that leads us to think that we're awesome and they're not, to elevate myself and to lower others. You know, when we first decide for Jesus, especially if you did it as an adult, can you remember just like how grateful you were? How, how like unbelievable it was that you had found something that's so satisfied. And that the thought that like whatever your choices had been or whatever destructive behaviors that have been a part of your life, that that God wipes that clean through Christ. And you felt so humbled by that and so loved by God and loved by the community of faith. What is it that over time that, that turns in our minds, right? To where we're not grateful for it. We're not overwhelmed by God's grace, but we feel kind of like a self-satisfaction or, you know, like we, we not only feel awesome about ourselves because of the great decision that we made, which by the way, faith is a decision. It's not something you just passively happens to you. But then we also like something about that choice makes us feel superior to others. I think that that's What Jesus is getting at elevating ourselves and lowering others and then lastly um, and I think that this is a common thing for us in this practice uh, a wrong motive for fasting would be to get something from God one writer I read put it this way that we fast in response to not in order to gain something in other words, when we fast, we're doing it in response to something that has happened or something that God is doing in us. One writer put it, uh, coined this word benefititis. And he said that it is an inflammation of seeking spiritual and material blessings. You get it? S- sometimes we can um, combine with prayer much more, we combine fasting with our prayer uh, with the idea that my prayers are much more likely to get answered. And so fasting becomes a way to manipulate God into getting what we want. It's like buying two lottery tickets. You know, your odds are so much better and God must hear me even better. And he's more obligated to answer my prayers when I'm hungry. You know, the only problem with that is there's no biblical support for that. The prophet Isaiah condemns Israel for having an ulterior motive in fasting. It's in Isaiah 58. In verse 2, it says, day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God." they ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. In verse 3, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Do you do you see the self-focus that's coming through that Isaiah is bringing out? You know their motive is clear that it that this Fasting that they're doing has nothing to do with what God is doing in them. It has really nothing to do with this religious and pious act to their actual lives. And Isaiah goes on, yet on the day of your fasting, You do as you please and exploit all your workers. Furthermore, he goes on in Isaiah 58 to say, while you're fasting, you're quarreling and fighting. You're malicious toward your brothers and sisters. You've hardened your hearts toward the marginal and the hungry, and you're denying them food. And from sharing sharing your food with them, which you would think while fasting, they would at least get that. And you ignore justice. In other words... Isaiah is, is bringing out why, why do you fast and yet you're not broken up about all the things that are a part of what is going on in the world around you or what is going on in your own hearts. You know, I wonder what, why does Jesus make such a big deal out of this? I mean, you know, he could have just said it once, but in this sermonette, this mini section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeats basically the same concept three times. And he takes three practices from their everyday life, their everyday walk with God, and he points out basically the same things. It is because our religious practices, our good deeds, even our beliefs and doctrines are all meant to draw us into a deeper relationship with God, to follow Jesus more authentically, all these things end up becoming the most important thing. Rather than drawing us closer to Jesus, they distract from that or even worse, become our idols. I loved what uh, Danny said last week where he talked about intent. Our good acts can become totally disconnected from the intent that God has for them. And so these symbols, these acts, or even good deeds without the true God become something that is corrupt. And Jesus says, you got what you really wanted in the end. If that's why you do them in verse 16, he says, truly, I tell you, and he says this every time you have received your reward in full. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus makes this a big deal. Another reason is, it's just simple pride. How is it that we as desperate sinners who need the grace of God to save us, we need a savior that that had to shed his blood on the cross. How do we, become the finger pointers toward ourselves or even toward others? How is it that we take these things that are gifts from God to to help us connect more authentically and genuinely to walking with Jesus and understanding the spiritual life and understanding the world that we live in? And then we turn them into something that makes us swell, with our own self-righteousness. I think that Jesus was so hard on self-righteousness because I think it is the most dangerous temptation of the committed. What is the biggest threat to the gospel today? It's pride. Pride is the main obstacle to the gospel, whether it's pre-conversion or after conversion. Pride gets in the way. Some people cannot bow before Jesus and, and become a follower to initiate faith because they're just prideful. And some of us who have even done that later on, we cannot live out the gospel in the way that Jesus is intended in the world that we live because we're filled with pride. And lastly, I think that Jesus makes such a big deal out of this issue of doing things for show is because of our hearts. Because in the end, this is simply a heart issue. And these three homilies that he gives us point us back to the why for each one of them. What is it in the end that we're trying to do in any act or spiritual discipline? Are we just trying to check a list off? Are we trying to like set markers that make us feel good or make us feel spiritual? To make us feel like we finally arrived. I've done these things. I got the list done. And now I'm a real, authentic, superior follower of Jesus. I mean, it's like, we're just so weird about that. The truth is that we never arrive at that place, that our following of Jesus, even in these practices and others, just are part of the journey. You see these, what Jesus is pointing out about these practices and wrong motive is that that's a symptom. See, the issue here isn't stop doing something for show. Jesus Jesus is bringing out something that's much deeper than that, the heart issue, because this, this, this thing that we do in order to appear, especially spiritual, or especially righteous or moral, that's just a symptom. It really is a heart issue. You know, I, I think of it this way: that um, we all know people who have gotten cancer. Many have died. You, I'm sure you have people in your family. And, you know, I've known people who, um, you know, the, the the initial symptoms of cancer was like, you know, a pain somewhere in their body or a cough. And obviously, you know, like the medical field treats the most obvious things that that would be. And so they either give you Motrin or antibiotics and they assume that, these are, that this, this is the issue, but really, What it turns out to be is a deadly terminal disease. We don't treat the symptoms in the end. We treat the real problem. And the problem here is that there are acts without heart. And in the end, what Jesus is pointing out is that being a Christian or following Jesus isn't about the things, these spiritual things that we do. It's about our heart for following Jesus. These things are avenues or vehicles that assist us in becoming like him, to knowing him and to doing his works in the world. That's the thing. And so if there's a way that I could just wrap up these three messages that had to do with the things that we do in order to be seen and find our reward among men, and among our, in in our world today, is that Jesus is driving us back to where our heart is. And so I would just ask you, you know, where is your heart? Often we think, you know, like, well, my here's, um, my spiritual level is here, you know, as we assess ourselves. And we, we often go to the things that we've been doing. Well, I've been reading my Bible and I've been going to church some, I've, you know, I pray, you know, I listen to Christian music, I, I listen to Brit's messages. Um, you know, we, we ha- I serve, I do these things, but like really, don't we need to just like return back to the basic things? Like, am I sitting at the feet of Jesus and following him and doing his works? And, am I authentically and genuinely in my heart? am I leaning toward him and following him? That's the real question. Let me pray, and then again, thank you for listening. God, uh, that's, that's kind of like the whole culmination of this section that I, I ask that those of us who listen or watch and think about these things that you would remind us of where our heart is and you would draw our hearts back to you and these things that we do would not be our idols or, or a, a cheap substitute, what you're really doing in the world which is calling us to follow you in this day and time and that our hearts would truly reflect genuine passion for taking the next step that you show us in following you today amen hey sunridge guests online Uh, podcast. Thanks for listening. God bless you. And we look forward to seeing you again, uh, either online or at our church on Sunday morning at 1030. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.